Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Welcome, Voyagers, to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 56. As of recording, I don't yet have a name, but by the time you're listening to this, it will be episode 56, the something, 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 with guest Andrea Wynn. Andrea is a phenomenal cookbook writer, chef, author, teacher, uh, blogger. She writes these amazing cookbooks, of which I have two right now, the Pho Cookbook and the Bon Mi Handbook. Uh, she does classes that you can sign up for at vietworldkitchen.com. There's a link to that in the show notes, as well as information about the books and some of the other things that uh, she does in the show notes. She's up for a James Beard Award here in New York City in just two days. Uh, James Beard Awards are for pretty much all things food writing, there are uh, blogs, there are cookbooks, there are even podcasts. So, world of James Beard, I don't know who votes, but maybe this time next year, the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast is going to be nominated for a James Beard Award. Probably not, but that would be pretty cool. So, my love for Andrea's writing came first when I purchased for myself the Bon Mi Handbook. Uh, I love Vietnamese food. I don't think I need to go into my affinity for Vietnamese food and culture. We've talked about it extensively on this podcast. Um, but it's an amazing book that makes cooking not so difficult. Then, about, about one year ago, I was having a particularly bad day at work. And, you know, I don't really get mail at work that's not work-related, but an Amazon package showed up and somebody delivered it to me. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. Open it up. I've got a note from a former colleague and great friend. And inside that was the pho cookbook. And this book is amazing. The It has a, a history of pho that we get into in this episode that's it's really fascinating. Like I know you're like, oh, wow, like the history of a soup. But it's incredible because it is interconnected with the history of Vietnam in the 20th century. And the, the photos are beautiful. It transports you back, it transports me back to, to Saigon. Um, it's giving me the itch, man. Like I need to get back stat. Um, Andrea herself is really accessible. She responds to a lot of comments online, to her blog posts, to questions and things like that. Um, and I'm just, I'm constantly blown away that there are people that I admire that give me the time of day to have them on this podcast. You know, I, I, I made a, an initial list. Some of those folks are quite hard to, you know, not as attainable, uh, but most of the folks that I've had on that list, I've been able to talk to and to, to have these great conversations with. And today was no different. I loved this. I'm so thankful that Andrea gave me the time of day. And I hope that you guys will go out and check out her content, her books, and the information that she puts out into the world of food because it's incredible. Okay, that is it for the intro. Oh, wait a second. No, please head over to my Instagram page, The Voyages of Tim V. I should probably change that to the voyages of Tim Vetter, right? There was a long time I didn't really want people finding me, but it's okay if they do now. So 
the Voyages of Tim V. I will have a giveaway, as I always do, with some of Andrew's cookbooks. I might even let you pick which one you want, and I'll have that shipped to you from Amazon or, or, or some other place that will get it to you quick and easily. So do that. It's Instagram.com slash TheVoyagesOfTimV. As always, you can reach out to me at email at TheVoyagesOfTimVetter at gmail.com. And finally, we are on Patreon. I am on Patreon. Um, I talk about it in this episode, but I'm about to head out into the world. And a main component of that is to record podcasts, to bring you content. I'm planning out Bhutan right now, folks. How sweet is that? We are going to have an episode from Bhutan. Um, And so it's quite expensive to do some of those things. Um, I do have... Brian the Wizard Goldsman, who helps out with all things audio and makes things sound uh, beautiful and professional. And so I throw him money, and I've got artwork done by the amazing Raz, who you can check out um, at Raz Christ, R-A-Z Christ, at Instagram. He also makes some horror pins and things like that. So um, I throw him some money sometimes. So all those things to say, uh, I don't make money on the podcast, but if you want to help out in any way to help cover some of those costs, you can do so uh, on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. Okay, now that's it, folks. Enjoy this one. I sure did. Bye-bye. I've always had an infatuation with traveling and and going out into the world, but my method for doing that as a kid was doing that through books. You know, my family never really had money. It wasn't a priority to try to take the kids out of the country. Um, So mid-20s, about seven years ago, some of my coworkers and friends and I, we would meet up once a month uh, here at 86 and 4th Ave in Brooklyn, and we would hang out and eat pho. We'd get Pho Thai, uh, Pho Bo Co, and two of them had spent some time in Vietnam and we would just talk and talk and talk and they would fill me with these stories and I fell in love with it before I ever went. Um, and now I've gone, the, the past three summers I've gone to Vietnam, I'm going to continue to go and I, I've just fallen in love with it. And I kind of hold Pho, it sounds a little cheesy, but in that magical kind of category for me because that was sort of the stimulus to uh, get things kind of started and sort of stoke the flames of of the fire in me. Um, Flash forward to, I think about this time last year, and one of my former colleagues surprised me and sent me this book here in the mail to work, which is your pho cookbook, which is like the pho Bible to me. It is beautiful in its artistry, it's a history book, and it's quite a practical book. all of that to say, so excited to be talking to you, and uh, I appreciate you coming on. So thank you. Well, thank you. My goodness. <laughs> You're a fanatic. That is, <laughs> that is true. Um, this, this is nominated for a James Beard Award. Correct. Um, so in the cookbook writing world, there are two... Um, awards, and one is called the IACP Award. It's awarded by the International Association of Culinary Professionals, and the other one is the Beard Award. So this book has been nominated 
for both of them. Ooh. And so it's a pretty rare thing. Um, it's happened to me before. I'm blessed by that. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I have never won. <laughs> this is the thing that is interesting. So it's always good to be nominated. I have to tell you that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, congrats. And that is this week, right? That's why you're in New York or coming to New York. Right. I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm coming to New York for the Beard Awards, which um, I'm so excited about because a lot of my friends are nominated this year, too. And so it's going to be like a really great party. Yeah, oh, I mean, that's awesome. Um, and like I said, uh, folks who are listening to this will have heard the intro. So they know that we're gonna, I'm going to be giving away a couple of copies of the cookbook as well. But like I said, I mean, the pictures, first of all, transformed me back to, to Saigon. Um, so it, it's beautifully shot. And what was the impetus for including a history, which I found fascinating? But what made you think to do that? Well, um, I frankly didn't think that I needed to write a book about pho. Because um, in my first cookbook, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, I covered the two major types of pho, the beef pho, pho ba, as well as chicken pho, pho ga. And I was like, that's it. I have nothing else to say. They're really good recipes. I use them. A lot of other people have too. But um, I started teaching pho classes and people said, you should write a pho book. And I thought, I have nothing to say. And my publisher then came to me and said, you should write a file book. And I said, I really don't think I can't have that much to say. It would be like a pamphlet. Um, and then they said, we think you can do something really interesting. So why don't you go off and think about it? And so I went and I did a lot of research and a lot of thinking. And I realized from having researched file history before that I, I could actually tell the history, the modern history of Vietnam through pho. And that is like the only dish, it's such an iconic dish in the Vietnamese repertoire that I can discuss, you know, how Viet Vietnamese people have used it as a way to protest colonization, as a way to also uh, express self-determination. Um, as, you know, we've uh, experienced it abroad, it also reflects um, the diaspora and hyphenated cuisine of Asian American cuisine and now of people like yourself, you know, being interested in uh, traveling back to Vietnam. So it's transnational, it's international. And I can discuss that evolution of Vietnamese culture and history and cuisine through one dish. And so that's why that history section is there. Nothing like that has ever been written in English before. It took a lot of work. And so I'm just so um, happy that, you know, it, it has made an impact. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I'm not just saying this because you're, you're here today, but I, I think that's what could make you certainly a front runner for winning. Um, I never realized the potential Chinese connection because, you know, uh, I am a student of history. I've taught history. And so, you know, I, I know France, but even going back to like, the Ming Dynasty, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. They dominated trade in that entire region. But I never I never even realized that there was a Chinese connection to pho. You know, the Chinese were all over the place. And, yeah. Um, they were, you know, geographically, you look at the map and you're like, oh, China's right there. And they've been in and out of Vietnam for a thousand years. The French were almost like latecomers um, in terms of colonizing little Vietnam. 
And, you know, the soup itself, because there's that mythology that it came from Potofa, the French um, boiled beef dinner um, that's very brothy, then, you know, pho sounds like pho, so my God, they should be related, right? But they're, they're not totally, like, direct kin. Mm. They're not, you know, pho is not a descendant of French potophile. It is merely um, a product of, as I described it in the, um, the history section of the book, it pho came about through cultures rubbing shoulders of people just being together in the same place, and it happened to be Vietnamese territory. And um, so there were beef scraps, there were rice noodles, and there were people who needed to make a living. Yeah. And so they came up with something that was brilliantly new and um, wonderful. I was going to save this question, but I think maybe it's an appropriate time to ask it. Within the history section, you mentioned that, and I have, I have a couple notes here, that in 1939, uh, pho ga, which is chicken, uh, rather than beef, hits the scene. And purists, even back then, were like, well, this isn't pho. Um, and from my own experiences, you know, you have regional differences in the north and in the south. And I can even think here in the States, I was in Santa Barbara once and I saw pho with salmon. Uh, after reading your book, it seems like you are in favor of promoting experimentation and the expansion and the incorporation of other cultures. Uh, but I wonder if, if you do have a limit. Is there a point when pho is no longer pho? Well, you know, there are certain things that make pho what it is for me. And um, pho is about the noodle soup itself. So about the spices that go into it, about the garnishes, um, about broth. But pho is also, by definition, about those flat, wide rice noodles. And so, um, you know, there's a sandwich recipe in there, like mm. a pho beef, you know, bun mi sandwich, uh-huh. right? And um, I got that idea from eating a similar uh, kind of sandwich in California. And there was a chef who said, hey, you know what? I'm going to have a side of broth. I'm going to have... And the um, the um, pickle in bread, and then it's just like a a beef dip sandwich, like an American beef dip. But then I was like, no, you know what, girlfriend? Because she was a, a, a Vietnamese American chef that did this. I was like, no, you instead of a regular daikon or radish pickle, let's make a pickle out of bean sprouts. Because hey, you're, if you're having pho, you're going to have bean sprouts around, especially if you're a southern Vietnamese pho eater. And there's a classic. Um, Vietnamese pickle made with bean sprouts. So I'm like, let's throw that in there. Let's throw Vietnamese herbs. And after I wasn't into dipping um, the sandwich because I thought that made everything too wet. So I like made like a pot roast with pho spices and seasonings, cook down that cooking liquid and let that coat the beef so that you have like big flavors. Wow. And it was like a really good sandwich. I mean, there are, are things that, you know, then someone asked me, well, can you make a a pho dumpling? <laughs> that was like, like a pho soup dumpling. Yeah, right? I've had that. Someone in Brooklyn who was doing that. Uh-huh. And, 
And then I was like, I have made Chinese soup dumplings before, and I do not want to have it in the book because that is like graduate level um, cooking. And I was just like, you know, I'm already asking people to do all this weird stuff with bones and stuff. So I made a pho pot sticker. And I do things like I harvest the fat from the broth, and which has a ton of flavor. Um, and so pho is also about resourcefulness. Because again, the, the, the food started out as being like made by scrappy people who were using up scraps. Right. So I'm like, I'm just gonna do this no waste thing, right? So that's why the pot stickers are in there. Um, and then the weirdest thing that I put in the book was were um, pho cocktails, which I have to tell you, when I was in Vietnam, I was like, no, this couldn't possibly be. But my friends who were in Hanoi, they said, oh, you've got to go have the pho cocktail. And um, it's a combination of different pho spices, and the original version had you light the, the spices on fire while pouring, like, oh. gin through. And so the thing was like this pyrotechnic, you know, um, mixology thing. And I tried it, and I was like, this tastes like fun. It has, like, it gives me the impressions of pho. Wow. And so my playing, riffing on pho is something that is being done in Vietnam. And I think that at, for, for people living outside of the country, you're like, you know, you're such a purist. But for Vietnamese people, they're like, you're kind of, we see this every day. We see all the time and we want to push it. So going back to 1939, when chicken fall came on the scene and got, you know, people all worked up. It's kind of like, hey, you know, this is like part of the Vietnamese spirit. And you really like go with it. And, um, and you see how well you can succeed and how well things can be received. Yeah, that's a really cool perspective. Um, I want to start with, and hopefully you're comfortable with all this. If you're not, just certainly let me know. But I'd, I'd like to start with when you were young and when you and your family first came to the United States. I believe I remember reading that um, you emigrated in 1975. Correct. So that, I mean, uh, I believe it was in the spring of 1975 that um, Saigon was captured. So that must have been pretty down to the wire for you and your family. Correct. And so um, we were able to fortunately leave on a plane a week one before the fall of Saigon. So, you know, conceivably around today. I mean, if you just go back to 1975, go back, you know, many years, um, this was around the time when Vietnam was falling apart. And um, we were able to fake papers to get into the wow. airport, the airport that you flew into in Saigon. Except back then, all of those pawns that had, there were a lot of them, because that's where the military was based. And get if you got into the airport, that meant that you could somehow get your way onto an American plane and get the hell out. And um, there was an American um, man who had worked with, with one of my aunts at the U.S. State Department, and he had come back to Saigon to try to help as many Vietnamese people as possible that he'd worked with um, to leave the country. And so... My aunt at the time was like willing to take my two older sisters and my dad, who had been planning a sea escape um, with five other families. He had like totally redone this um, cargo boat so that, you know, five families could go on there and there was food and water for a certain amount of time. And then 
all of a sudden the, the plan fell apart because the, the South Vietnamese government forbade any unofficial boats from leaving the Saigon Harbor. And so at that point, my dad didn't know what to do. And so he went around town, around Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City, talking to every single American that he could possibly find. And they were like, oh, don't worry. We'll bring your furniture to America. You will be reunited with your furniture. And my dad's like, I don't care about my furniture. I want my family to leave. We want to go. But no one would help him. Um, but this one gentleman that my aunt had a connection with, he was willing to help not just our family um, and my aunt, but also my uncles and their family. So I can't tell you, I mean, you know, at that back then it was scary, but in retrospect, because I've had so many friends who were boat people um, who left later, years later, um, or who were sent to um, strange hinterlands to live, like in the mountains. There were city people who got sent into the villages and mountains to live, um, who suffered much more. So, you know, I kind of joke about it, but we were really on like the business class, first class ticket out of there. And um, that was a really tumultuous time in history for um, refugees who were leaving Vietnam and also for the whole world to watch that country fall apart. Yeah, wow. I mean, I, that's making me think of, uh, I'm sure you know of the work, but uh, I would recommend that folks read The Sympathizer. Um, the, also, the, the author also wrote a book called The Refugees, and that sort of explains, you know, like you mentioned boat people, um, and like the lasting effects on families of a lot of those different nuances of types of immigration. Um, I, I think I also read that you had a cousin who was stuck behind and went through a re-education camp. Is that correct? Well, um, my dad had a lot of cousins who did okay. that. But in the follow book, um, the cousin that I mentioned actually was a staunch communist follower. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and this is a typical story, um, and I'm glad you're into history because history is so rich. Um, and... Food is kind of like you can tell, use it as a lens to, to tell historical, uh, to provide historical context for people. Um, so a lot of Vietnamese families, like my father's, and he was from northern North Vietnam, split during the 40s and, and 50s. And so you would have typically have people who sided with, with the North um, and then people who sided with the South. And in 54... Um, the Viet Vietnamese people had a choice um, to migrate south or migrate north, depending on whether or not they wanted to be with the more like communist socialist northerners or with the nationalists in the south. And um, the Geneva Accords split the country into two. But back in the 40s, one of my father's cousins or several of his cousins were already engaged with the whole communist movement. And um, they split. And so, you know, of my father's generation, he has cousins that he has never spoken to again until, I mean, he has just never spoken with again since the 40s. Wow. And he, he tells a story of like with one of his cousins who eventually rose to become a four-star general and the political commissar of the Northern Vietnamese Army. Um, he said, 
I said to him before we parted ways that if we ever see each other on the battlefield, that we need to remember that we are family. And so, you know, flash forward to, you know, 2015 and I've got this cousin in Hanoi who um, is a journalist. Um, he was an ardent follower of the Communist Party and um, an intellectual. He was trained by Aeroflot, so he speaks Russian. Wow. And he's in his 50s. And I got to know him better through foe. No way. <laughs> yeah. And I got to ask him questions about to verify things that I had read of, you know, during the 60s and 70s, during times of deprivation, you know, what was it like to, you know, in Hanoi? And he's not a food person, but he has observed a lot because he's a journalist. And so he and his friend who, um, who's a poet, and I mentioned them, and there's a photo in the back of the book of the three of us talking together in the acknowledgement section, uh, you know, discussing what it was like and, and what something like, who were in the North. Meanwhile, I had cousins in the South um, who talked about, you know, visiting the North for the first time after 75, what is called reunification when the country became one again. Um, and they were like, you know, I can't believe there was like rationing in the North. How uncivilized. You had to get a ticket to get a bowl of pho. And they were so um, disgusted with the the lack of resources in the in the north. And you know, you go back now, and you wouldn't you wouldn't even like see that as as a tourist, as a visitor. But in the 70s and 80s, when Vietnam was really struggling, um, and there was a lot of bitterness between North and South people, you know, like pho was one of these things where it was very clear, you know the Southern style full of herbs and garnishes and big bodacious bowls, the Northern style, no garnishes, mint if you're lucky, smaller bowls. And the Northerners, um, and I, you know, they, they say things like, well, the Southerners, they use all of those foreign herbs. And sugar, right? Talking about, you know, and sugar. And the Southerners say, those Northerners, they make such bland, puny bowls. And so here, so Fa allows me to tell the story of the regional infighting that happens yeah. between Vietnamese people. No, it's fascinating. Um, it's really, yeah, yeah, it totally is, you know. <laughs> One of the other differences, which is changing rapidly, but like the, the type of establishment too, in Saigon, a lot of stuff is getting pushed off the street now. Uh, there's even like, um, I was in district one last summer and there's something now called like the street food market and it's not street food anymore because it's pushed off into kind of like, um, like a picnic style, like open air, but it's, it's not street food. Um, so that's, it's, it's interesting that it's still there, but, but a lot of the world is homogenizing before our very eyes. I, I won't stay on the topic forever. But something that I think is unique maybe to you is that when you emigrated, you were still quite young. And so when you were high school age, 
you would have then been learning in your history courses about the Vietnam War, right? Our our title for it here in the in the states. Um, do you recall that? And, and and was that weird? And was it a very pro U.S. perspective? You know, I wasn't like an AP history student to tell okay. you the truth. And so um, the Vietnam War seemed to have been a topic that we blasted through. Mm. I memorized, you know, the dates and stuff, but no one asked me personally what it was like to be a refugee. Okay. So uh, that was, yeah, I was in high school and, you know, I graduated in 1986 and it wasn't a topic where, where, you know, people were saying, hey, you know, I heard about this thing called the Vietnam War. Um, or they didn't even consider me a refugee because I came so young, as you right. point out. And so I didn't have an accent. I was just like all the other kids, hmm. you know, they didn't, you know, I, I made my own clothes cause my mom was a dressmaker. And so hmm. we, we, like she taught us how to make stuff. Um, they didn't know that I was eating fish sauce at home and, and, you know, doing all this weird stuff. And so it didn't seem to matter. And it wasn't a point of discussion. My teachers didn't ask anything okay. to tell you the truth. It was just, you know, I was, it was like, just get through high school. And I don't know nowadays if that question would, you know, do you like, I don't know, as a teacher, do you ask, you know, students about their personal experiences? Um, certainly, yes. But um, how can I say this politically? Ah, whatever. The... The required curriculum for history is not a deep dive at all. In fact, in New York State, uh, they just changed the world history course. So now what's tested is 1750 onward. So that is European history. So basically any non-white history is no longer going to be tested. Um, so, you know... Kids don't learn like it. in 1975. Okay, war's over for the United States, but you're talking about reunification. You're talking about bombs dropped on the way out into Laos because the plane the planes can't land still with bombs. I mean, Cambodia all the way up into the 90s. Like, uh, there's not a deep dive into those things. So, um, yeah, I think I've learned a lot of those things through traveling. I mean the uh, I think maybe it's the slang term for it, but the American War Crimes Museum is, I have did a whole episode on here talking about it. Like, as a white American, it's like, it's embarrassing when I'm standing there. And like, it's, you fill up with tears. Like, it is a real place. And you're not going to see stuff like that in the history books. No. And, you know, Ken Burns' Vietnam yeah. War um, series was... So fascinating, but I know that it was also extremely painful for many Vietnamese Americans to watch. But I thought that it was so beautifully done, and um, it gives you perspective on how screwed up that whole period in um, history was, and how scary things were. I mean, you know, nowadays I feel like we're frustrated, we're um, tuned in, but the threat, the daily threat, and the carnage is not 
evident. Yeah. But it takes its toll on people in very emotional ways. Yeah. I mean, even biologically, there's there are genetic mutations that skip a generation. And so you'll see here in the aughts and in the, what, 20 teens, that there are young people who are born with deformities from things that trace back to chemicals and weaponry that was used during the war. Um, so it's something that's, there are still lasting effects. Like they are still cleaning up bombs in Laos. Um, yeah. I, I took us on a tangent here. So I want to connect it back to food with something you said, which was fish sauce. In the 70s and 80s here in the States, did you have access to fish sauce and Vietnamese ingredients? When we first came to the United States, um, there was like no fish sauce at the market. <laughs> I mean, you know, now you go, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Come on, you know, back in the, in the 70s, um, American supermarkets carried a very small number of, of ingredients. Things were pretty limited. And so my family ended up settling in a town called San Clemente in Southern California. And it was a small beach town known for surfing, known as where Richard Nixon retired to after he left the White House. Um, it was there, it was near a marine base. And we ate La Choy soy sauce and Mahatma rice for yeah. a long time until we could get a car or to go to Chinatown and get, you know, so-so fish sauce and decent rice. But it wasn't until the 80s when little Saigon started, you know, developing in Orange County in Southern California. Um, and that's like a granddaddy of little Saigon where the Vietnamese settled. Um, and that was about, 40, it's about 45 minutes from where my parents um, uh, settled in San Clemente. So, you know, we go up there and we stock up. We, you know, initially we went to Chinatown and then we just went to Little Saigon and we stocked up and, and would, you know, rice paper, rice noodles, fish sauce, good soy sauce, um, these kinds of basics that now when you go to Whole Foods, um, when you go to an American supermarket, you're like, oh yeah, I see those things at, you know, in the Asian food section. And, it, and for over 40 years ago, there was none of that, my friend. Yeah. It was really sad. <laughs> it's funny because I think for, you also have, um, I have it here. Where is it? Oh, right underneath. Uh, you have a book about banh mi, a cookbook with, about banh mi, uh, which both of those food items I think are pretty, pretty ubiquitous at this point. Like most people would, would know what they are. Um, is it further immigration or, or do you think that like the, the food culture now and the popularity of food personalities and things like that, have they helped to, I don't want to say normalize because that makes it seem like it's a weird food and it's not, but, but sort of bring it into the common language of our culture here in the United States? Well, um, those, both of those foods, banh mi and pho, have entered the English dictionary. So they no longer require, you know, italics when I use them to write. And for me, that's like a marker of like, yeah, we made it. Oh, the actual dictionary. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, you know, like, hey, is it in the, the language? Is it in yeah. the vernacular? You don't have to necessarily, not everybody needs to know what it is. Right. But, um, but it's, their popularity has grown, I think, because of 
travel um, programs. You know, people like Anthony Bourdain um, and Lou Zimmern. Um, they um, also, I mean, this all happened when ties between the United States and Vietnam normalized in the early 90s and people started traveling more and there was more trade. Um, and, you know, travel shows, um, uh, cookbooks, and then people, millennials, are more interested in global flavors now. Mm. People are much more open to, um, you know, different cuisines. And, and I'll tell you when, so when my first book came out, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen, the original title for that book was Pass the Fish Sauce. <laughs> and I was like, you know, because fish sauce is like used in so many parts of Vietnamese cooking. And I thought, I'm going to call it Pass the Fish Sauce. And my publisher came to me and said, you know what? We really can't, that title's just a little bit kind of out there and it's not going to sell as much. So I was like, okay. So the book comes out and I start teaching classes and to get people to taste fish sauce, I would like cut cucumber slices and have people dip them in different fish sauce and taste them. And now when I have fish sauce tastings, I bring fish sauce, um, not just from Thailand, but also from Vietnam, artisanal stuff I get a hold of, um, and people are just tasting, t- tasting them like on spoon. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're like, hey, you know, like tasting olive oil or something because they're that into it. Yeah. And these are not millennials necessarily. They're just like, you know, regular folks. They're not hipsters, but they're just, you know, people are really open to these new ideas. And um, what that shows me is that it is normal. It's like, People are open to it. Mm. It's not exotic. Yeah. And so, you know, growing up, like I was eating different foods. And as an adult, I cooked many different cuisines, Mexican, Thai, Chinese, Italian, French, and Vietnamese. So if I'm doing that, you know, I think that everybody else in the United States who's interested in, in food and cooking should also work Vietnamese food into their repertoire. Because like, what the heck, you know? It's, we're, we're really in a different place now in this country. Yeah. I've got a bond me question for you. I'm not as well versed. So you're from the world of food. I'm not as well versed in the science or maybe even like the politics here in the States, but um, the bread. So a bond me sandwich here in the States uh, has filling bread, um, if that makes sense. Uh, but when you Get a sandwich in Vietnam. You don't feel weighed down and full. It's like light and airy. We're using different types of wheat. Is that it? Um, we are using different kinds of wheat. Um, we're also using flour blends that don't have as much of this stuff called dough conditioner. Oh. So the the bread that the flour that's used in Vietnam is conditioned, meaning it has um, an leavening agent in it that allows the dough to rise to an airiness that is so, it's almost like wonder bread. It's so airy and light and um, it can rise in humidity. You don't have to do much to coax it. You don't have to um, have as much skill it's just but you do have to make bread Mm. um and so 
people, bread bakers, Vietnamese bread bakers oftentimes not very cognizant of that. They're just using a particular kind of industrial flour blend and it's got this stuff in it, this dough conditioner. And dough conditioners are used in American bread baking too, like I said, with Wonder Bread, with um, supermarket, quote-unquote, French bread, with um, the kinds of airy loaves that you may see at a bodega Mm. or Mexican bolillo rolls. Those are all, like, if you weigh those rolls, they weigh nothing. They're feather light, and they are not made to uh, last for very long either in terms of, like, you know, their... They don't have that much of a chew. The interior is very cottony. Yeah. Um, and Vietnamese people, they've gotten used to that because it's, wheat flour is really expensive in Vietnam. And for a banh mi sandwich to work, you don't want bread that's going to fight with you. Right. It's, it's nice because it's more about the ingredients. It's right. kind of just it's holding like it together. It's stuffed into bread. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I saw yeah, pe- and if you have like... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, it's funny. I I saw online once, um, it was like paleo or gluten-free. Someone had done a a deconstructed banh mi. And people were complaining like, well, this isn't Vietnamese. This is crazy. But one of my favorite things in Saigon is in the morning when uh, like working folks are getting ready to go to work. There's two things I would always see. One of them is like the eggs and sausages that you could get in a pan. It's like a dollar American. And the other one is... I, I'm not sure what it's quite called, but it is a deconstructed banh mi. It's, it's the ingredients without the bread. So that is a thing that people are eating. Yeah, I mean, you, it's almost like a breakfast skillet thing Yeah, that you can get um, with the bread on the side. Yeah. And you get a little pickle. And I went to one place, a banh mi shop um, in Saigon that's been open since 60s. Whoa. And by, still by the same family. And they had this bread that was denser, that was chewy, that was really lovely. And I asked the woman how come her bread was different. And she said, and she charged more money for it. Mm. And she said, because that's the style that my family's always had. And I remember when I was a kid in Vietnam, there was a certain smell that I associated with fresh baked bread and a certain texture and and chew, and I asked my parents about it, and they said there were like different styles and almost like different class of bread. The good bread was denser, and it had really good flavor and really good chew, and, the cheap, and then there was like this cheap bread that weighed nothing um, that you couldn't keep for longer than a few days. So in Vietnam, is when I wrote the banh mi book, I got to um, do a little research with local banh mi makers. A banh mi vendor will get like two or three drop-off of bread during like a three or four hour shift. So people are delivering freshly baked bread on like, you know, mopeds and motorcycles or something like that to a street vendor. You do not get that here. Right. Yeah. So there's a difference. Yeah. It reminds me of like a beer too. It like be a hoy or be a hi, if I'm saying that correct, because it's brewed every single day, fresh every single day. Um, we, we mentioned uh, pho, we mentioned banh mi. What is the next food to become popular? Is it, like you mentioned Bourdain, is it Boon Cha because he's on TV eating it with Obama? Is, is there something else coming down the pipe for Vietnamese cuisine that's going to become popularized in the States? I, 
I think a lot of people are, you know, beyond the rice paper roll, beyond yeah. the banh mi, beyond the pho. I think people are, are, are sort of going towards boon ba hui mm. because people are like, ah, you know, I'm bored with pho. I want boon ba hui. But boon ba hui is kind of a, it's a, it's a tough one, you know. There, there isn't that much leeway. There's no, you know, there are vegetarian versions, but um, it's not like... I, I, I don't see it being as rich and, and as nimble as a banh mi sandwich or a bowl of pho because it is kind of standardized. And then there's like this, these extreme versions of it where you have the blood and, you know, all these crazy parts in them. But blood cake is like, blood cake is so good. <laughs> <laughs> when it's good, it's really good, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to test your your knowledge here. I had to I had to look up the name of this and I think I got it correct, but I was out one night, I think Snell Streets in District 3, um but the shops closed at like 10:00-ish and I was too late. I was with my buddy and all the shops were closing up. We're like, "Ah, oh, there's nothing to eat." And we saw a couple noodle shops with with things we'd had before, so we were like, "Eh." We're walking around and I saw someone uh cooking up eggs and what looked like fried potatoes. So I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Like potatoes and eggs, that could hit the spot right now. So we get it and I'm eating it. And after a while, I'm like, I don't think these are potatoes. I think maybe I'm eating uh, lard. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's, it's bot, bot chien. Is that? Yeah. So, oh, so you know. Tien. Okay. So bot chien is, um, bot means flour or batter. Okay. And bot chien is, there are these cakes. They're like rectangular shaped cakes made with like rice flour and starch, and they're just white. Mm. Um, it's a riff on like Chinese daikon cakes, you know, that you would get at dim sum, but that would have yeah, like, like rice the cakes too. Chinese sausage in it. Yeah. Right. So the Vietnamese just, so they like skip the sausage. Yeah. <laughs> they get fancy. We're just going to go for like the carbs. And so they make that stuff. And, um, and, you know, I, I, I've made it before with, like, daikon in it because I, I like daikon. Uh-huh. Um, but you, you have, like, these white pieces of dough that are kind of firm. And um, you cut it up. And to make it really well, you've got to use lard. Oh, okay. And it's fried in lard, so it's a little crispy. And then you've got little lard bits that kind of get crispy because you're throwing in there. And then you throw your eggs on and your green onion, and then you've got your chili sauce and something that's sort of like hoisin anything. Yeah. And it's something you've got to share with like two or three other people. Which we didn't know, and we each got our own. Oh, <laughs> oh God, it's a gut bomb. Yeah, it took like a, it took a couple days to make its way through the system, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious about, I had read, I think maybe on your website, that you were a fan of Julia Child when you were younger. Um, I'm, but I'm curious about your education in cooking, it, Vietnamese cooking especially, because you had come to the United States where we were saying the ingredients weren't as plentiful at that time. Uh, were you learning from your parents? I was learning a lot from my parents, mostly my mom because um, she was a very studious, good cook and very militant in the kitchen. Mm. 
and she had standards that she made us stick to. Um, and she had a family of seven to feed and we had homemade food, like, you know, nearly every day, morning, noon till night, because we couldn't afford to go out and eat. Um, and so she taught me how to cook. Um, I also was very, we were a very curious family when it came to food. Um, we were interested in food in Vietnam. And when we came to the U.S., my parents were like, oh, my God, look at all the butter, the white sugar, the flour. Grapes. Grapes are very expensive in Vietnam. <laughs> and so they really, like, got into that. And so we would, like, read um, magazines that, that people, like, Family Circle magazine, Good Housekeeping, magazines that Americans who had, you know, were trying to introduce us to American culture. They were like giving to our families sort of not like a recycling way, but in a way to introduce us to what America is all about. Hmm. And so we would like, you know, make brownies, make spaghetti, but if we had, or burritos or chili, but if we had any of those foods, there was always a pot of rice. Okay. Because my mom was like, I got to have my rice. Yeah. I don't care, you know? Um, and then we also had this apartment that was near a library. So we would go and we would um, check out library books. And because so much of Vietnamese food is, is, is like this amalgam of cultures, my mom started like checking out, you know, um, Julia Child books. And my sisters and I would, would join this thing called Book of the Month Club where back then, like for $3, you got three books for free. And then after that trial period, you had to like commit to more. And so we would like cancel our subscription and then one of us would then start a new subscription. (laughs) (laughs) And there were four sisters. Wow. So that's how we built like this little library of cookbooks. And so, um, you know, it was stuff like that, but I was really interested in food. But each one of my sisters, well, my sister, who's not an attorney, she was the dishwasher of the family. But my other two sisters, they were into baking and, and cooking all kinds of things. And sometimes my dad would make stuff, too. So we're really curious about food. But I'm the only one that just really studied it and looked at and read cookbooks like novels mm. um, and I taught myself how to cook because that's what I saw my mom do. Yeah. Were, did you work in kitchens at all? I cooked briefly in the early 90s in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, at a restaurant called City that was owned by two women, Mary Sue um, Milliken and Susan Feniger. And then I did catering stuff. And that was like most unglamorous work. And so um, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll do something else in food, but not this. Yeah. Acrobat, you know, I had to do aerobics like and acrobatics, it seemed like eight hours a day. But I still love to cook. But I just need to find some other way to do it. Is it a fair observation to say that um, in Vietnam, cooking and food culture is largely dominated by women? Yes, there's a lot. When you take a look at um, who's making the food and who's selling the food, women are in the kitchens. Yeah. And women are managing the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And frankly, people have said to me, oh, you know, I want to go to Vietnam with you. And I'm like, I don't make, I'm not good with keeping people happy 24-7, but I'm going to tell you this little secret of mine, which is when I go to look for places to eat, I look at where the women are eating. Mm. I don't go to where the men are hanging around because they're just hanging around Drink, smoking right? cigarettes yeah. and drinking beer or coffee. Yeah. They're not there for the food. The women are there for the food. <laughs> so, because the women, I think, know what's going on. Um, I've, I've so, had, yeah, yeah. Women are the barometer, you know, for, for cooking and in many ways. That is really interesting because I'm thinking I have got a bunch of friends now who, who live in Vietnam. And yes, when we go out to eat, um, my friends who are women are not drinking. That is, that is something I hadn't quite picked up on. How often do you go to Vietnam? Um, I haven't been since 2015 because I've just been busy working on two different books. I hope to get back soon. Okay. You're like, you know, you're a return visitor, which I'm just so excited about. And you have friends and stuff and, and you go in the summer when it's sweltering. Yeah. So this is interesting. Um, I've been, <laughs> I kind of just roped you into this. I've been saving up for, I'm going to do a whole episode about this major life change. I've worked in education for almost 10 years now. I, I know I look quite young, um, but I've been in schools for nine ish years and I'm stepping away and I'm going out into the world for uh, an undetermined amount of time. And so every year I've used Vietnam as my base, my launching point. Um, the international airport flies everywhere and I'm comfortable there. I know people, like I said. So yes, I will, long story short, I will be returning. Um, I was going to follow up with the question and maybe you can still answer this. Um, even though uh, my experiences in Vietnam are quite limited, it's just three years, just, uh, you know, a few weeks each summer. Um, I've noticed in those three years, major changes, uh, much more high rises by the river. Uh, the traffic circle in district one is gone because they're building a, a rail, uh, a high-speed rail. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if you, if you've noticed changes and this is very long winded. I apologize, but to tie it, Together, I did an episode with a fascinating woman who lives in Cambodia, and we talked about like these international companies coming in and international agreements like that high-speed rail, which is an agreement with Japan, and how that shows the rest of the world that the country is economically viable and ready for international business and things like that. But I wonder if this homogenization, which we even see here in downtown Brooklyn, I wonder if this ultimately it will eventually detract from tourism because the place loses its particular unique identity. Am I yeah. close to being correct there? Yeah, well, for example, in the early 90s, um, I won a fellowship from the Rotary Foundation to live and study in Hong Kong. Mm. And back then it was dirty, people were rude, but it was so exciting. Mm. <laughs> And um, distinctive. And years later, um, like in, I don't know, maybe 2008 or so, I went back and things were clean. And there were all of these cruise ships in the harbor and it was orderly and people were nice. And I didn't find it to be as charming as yeah. it used to be. 
So with Vietnam, I think that they want to be, you know, it, it's a communist country. It's yeah. a communist socialist country. So we cannot forget that. And so they want that modernization because countries like China have them. Um, Singapore is clean and, and open for business. But I think that it could be at the detriment of um, not just the character of the country, which I think you'll will define if you go outside of urban centers, but yeah. there are a lot of, frankly, public health issues. Um, for example, diabetes is on the rise in Vietnam at this incredibly high rate. And at the same time, like Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola are like looking at that little country and going, here is our next burgeoning market. Yeah. We're going to sell the hell out of our sodas. And so it's that kind of convenience um, lifestyle that, that, that's going to happen so quickly that, you know, people won't have to walk as much there and, and their lifestyles will change and their diets will change and the health of the country, the physical health, you know, is, has to catch up. I mean, like there are issues of sanitation, as you know, that we still need to get addressed. Yeah, you can for have sure. a damn high speed rail, but you can't drink the water. Right. Which cripples me so, every time for a know, couple of days. I, I, I get I get the bug every single time. <laughs> yeah. And where does all of that trash go? Right. <laughs> no. And so it, I feel like there will, so long as those kind of infrastructure issues exist in that country, building a high speed rail and having, you know, those fancy shops in District One, that yeah. you know, and and seeing uh, uh, Rolls area. Royce every once in a while, it's not going to do it. Right. That country is still going to have the tensions that keep it where it is. It's funny too. People always think of of McDonald's as like the evil American export, but KFC, KFC is everywhere. From uh, from I've been to, to Kenya, to Indonesia, it's huge. To to Vietnam, and often. It's more expensive than someone that's that's selling from a food stall or a restaurant, but it's you know it's chic now, which is a little silly here yeah. because we don't okay. think of it as like glamorous. It's not maybe glamorous is the wrong word, but it's it's cool for young people. Yeah, and they're you know they're interested in um, what's cool, and there are young professionals who want nice restaurants. Um, ingredients that are organically grown on farms and, and the internet has helped that a lot. You know, these are people who are really tuned in. Um, and so th there's going to be a lot of pushback. I don't think that, and the young and young people are also very concerned about all those buildings being raised yeah. in urban centers and in, in district one, they're really pissed off. So, and they're interested in also recapturing some of that aura of the mid-century, um, and we're talking about the, you know, the, the 60s, the 50s and 60s in Vietnam when there was like all that cool furniture <laughs> and, and you know, that music. And so, you know, because Vietnamese people were very romantic and, <laughs> and sappy. <Yeah. laughs> so, you know, you see that and they care. And I think that, that especially the, in the South, um, with that, that spill that happened a few years ago, you know, people are, 
are are monitoring things and they're not going to let the country get so easily spoiled yeah. so quickly. I've got a couple more things I want to chat about. Uh, I want to tie it back to the work you're currently doing. So again, uh, a number of amazing cookbooks. Uh, we didn't mention tofu, which you were just cooking up a little bit earlier. Um, and you've, I think, quite masterfully, we mentioned millennials, but you've quite masterfully navigated uh, writing in the, the 20 teens. You're active on Twitter and Instagram. I love your blog. Um, it's not just Vietnamese food. And again, your writing, even the history in these books is really interesting and fun. Um, I'd love for you to talk about what you're working on right now, because I think you have a 2019 release date. Yeah, I am uh, working on a book called Vietnamese Food Any Day. And it's a book I've been wanting to write for a long time. It circles back to your question about the availability of Vietnamese ingredients or ingredients for making Vietnamese food when my family first came here. And so I'm obsessed with grocery stores and supermarkets. <laughs> so over the years, you know, I would always like, where, in whatever city I went, I would like go look at the supermarket. Even countries, I go to the supermarket. You know, in China, I'll go to like, um, there, you know, I'll go to Walmart yeah. to see what the masses are buying and eating. So um, in America, we've seen this, this growth of, of um, ethnic ingredients in the international uh, ingredient section. And finally, you know, there's like enough stuff there that allows me to write a cookbook um, without asking readers to go to an Asian market. All the ingredients for Vietnamese food any day come from, you know, a regular grocery store, or you can go to the farmer's market, or you can go to your indie market. You can go... You know, you don't have to navigate and negotiate an Asian market, which is like, it's, you know, it's, it can be grueling, even for Asian people, even for someone like me. I'll like be staring at this stuff going, gosh, which one should I get? <laughs> because there, there are so, so many choices. Um, but it's a really fun book. And um, among the testers uh, that I had on the book were like my nieces and her housemates. They're all in their 20s. <laughs> they were like a team of recipe testers on top of my regular testers. So it was like really fun. And the, the recipes are doable for like any day of the week. They're not just about um, weekend warriors or, you know, project cooking, because I feel like why not make like take the tension off and just make this food every day, any day you want. I don't make Vietnamese food every day. I have to tell you that. Um, and so I feel like, what the hell, you know, America, we can do this. And um, they're simplified recipe, but, we, but they're not dumbed down. Mm. And they're actually reflective of like how I cook and actually how a lot of other Vietnamese cook, people cook. And even someone like my mom, who's 84, and I checked in with her about a particular technique for prepping chicken. And I was like, oh, God, you know, I found this like new technique. It was like really cool. You don't have to like chop it through the bone. You just slash the chicken. And my mom looks at me and she goes, I've been doing that for years. <laughs> <laughs> she just didn't tell me. <laughs> There's ways for people to follow updates on the progress of the book, right? There's a, a um, email updates or something like that. 
Yeah, so if people want to, um, you know, keep up with what, what's going on um, at my website, vietworldkitchen.com, you can subscribe to um, uh, different newsletters that I send out. So one of them is just for Vietnamese food any day, and I don't, like, send you, like, emails every week or okay, cool. <laughs> every day, but just once in a while to see what's going on. Or if you want, like, weekly blog posts, um, emails, that happens. Or if you just want from me once a month that's okay too cool and um people can just check the show notes i'll have links to everything your blog um i've got a final thought and then i want to have you expand on a quote that you gave but i was just thinking that earlier we were talking about how um initially pho was what you had on hand right um you know it could be leftovers or scraps or things like that you know something that I think took a while for the American palate to be able to comprehend and digest is things like, um, marrow or, um, cartilage or uh, tripe and things like that. Um, but really that is the story of every single food culture everywhere, right? Especially when you have pockets of whatever the culture is that is, not as well off. Like you are going to take what you have and make a meal out of it. Like an Irish stew, the concept is, is really quite the same as a bowl of pho while the ingredients are, are quite different. Um, so it's not a question or anything, but I just think, I think that's really cool. And that's also why I love this conversation today. And I love your books is because the, the politics and the history of food are something that I think a lot of people overlook. Um, but with the onset of, you know, food personalities and, and blogs and things like that, I think we're all kind of collectively learning a lot more about. Um, so I want to say thank you for the work that you do because you've, you are um, vital to um, Vietnamese food today, but I just think food culture in general today. So, so thank you. Well, thank you for, for noticing all the nuances because, you know, if we didn't have context, yeah. Um, for food, if we didn't help know the stories, the backstories, if we, you can celebrate a food, but if you don't celebrate and understand the people who brought that about, then you're like missing half of the story. You're missing half of the flavors. And um, so thank you so much for, for um, reaching out and yeah. having this conversation with me today. I'm going to ask you one thing here. And then when we close out, just stay on with me. Um, but you were on another podcast and I, I wrote down your quote here. So uh, I think they, Saigoner or, or Saigoner, I don't know how they pronounce it. Yeah. Um, but you said, what is authentic to me is whether the cook is cooking with intent, purpose, and truth. What exactly do you mean by that? Well, there's, there's a word in Vietnamese called kale which means someone who is careful and thoughtful. Um, and you can be careful and thoughtful in anything that you do in your daily life. But when in the kitchen, that means that you know the foundations of, of a dish, you, in terms of the flavors, as well as the techniques, as well as the, um, the outcome. And so authenticity, I think people oftentimes think like it's black or white. It's either right or wrong. 
it's authentic or inauthentic. But as soon as you step into your kitchen to make something, everything's changed. Because what mm. that situation that's going on right there is is not going it cannot be defined by somewhat by an authenticity that you know, something authentic, the authentic ideal that someone else has set. Because that authenticity really has to come from you, the cook, who um, if you're cooking with intention and you are true to your situation, then it's going to taste good. If you throw things together hot in a podge manner, it's not going to be good. And your intention's not going to be there. So you're not being true to yourself. So I, I think of authenticity as something that is extremely philosophical about how true you are to your experience at the moment. And if you don't care, then you don't, meet, you don't care about being authentic to yourself or true to yourself. Um, and I think that, you know, people who say a deconstructed bun me is inauthentic. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I don't know. I'd have to taste it and see, you know, or someone who says to me, seafood pho is inauthentic, which my mother said. She said, don't put that in the book. Um, <laughs> but I didn't listen to her. <laughs> because there are other people making seafood pho and I wanted to make a really good one. So I came up with a great recipe. But I think that, that if you understand, for example, with, with pho, what goes into it, you know, what makes something pho, what makes something pho-ish, what makes the experience pho-like, then you can riff from there and you can create really authentic food. But that, all of that comes from, from intention and being thoughtful. And if you, do, if you lack those things, then you're not going to be authentic or true. I think those are good words to end on. I think that transcends food. And that's a good message for, uh, for people to take away. So I want to say thank you again. Um, just hang with me for a second. Voyagers out there, the, that was Andrea Wynn. Please check out her books. Check out the show notes for links to the books, to Viet World Kitchen, to the updates for the new book. And hopefully by the time you are listening to this, it has been announced that she is a James Beard Award winner. So everyone, as always, thanks for listening and take care of each other. Bye-bye.